So we did uh, we did learn about keeping up aim last week. So I don't want to go, obviously go over the basics. Uh, for anyone's interested, that shear is online. But just to review the highlights, uh, one of the really interesting things about keeping up aim, which I tried to explain and demonstrate, is that even though the Gemara very much speaks about keeping up aim in a practical service. Uh, type of uh, dimension, that is doing things for the parents themselves, taking care of them. And we spoke about the fact that uh, for most of us that it's actually a relatively limited opportunity mitzvah until our parents get older. Uh, if you would go to your healthy middle-aged parent and say, can I help tie your shoes, you know, or can I cook you, you know, maybe if you said, can I cook you dinner, after the shock, if you didn't send them into a heart attack, uh, then they probably would appreciate it. But if you wanted to tie their shoes or help them get dressed, I don't think they'd appreciate it at all. And it's clear, we mentioned that all the examples given in the Gemara are when there's a necessity. So for most of people's uh, adult lives, you're kind of in parallel tracks, behind heart and good health with your parents. But as the nature of things go, as they get older. So then from this dimension, you obviously get, get, obviously get much more opportunities uh, to do Kibar aim. That was the straightforward part of the Gemara, which itself is important and is going to have a lot of relevance to today's shir. Uh, what we tried to focus on last week was that in addition to all of that, there is also uh, other dimensions of the mitzvah. That is how you speak to your parents. Um, it's not just something that your mom or dad used to tell you. It's actually true, uh, how you speak to your parents. And maybe most fascinatingly was the machshava. We spoke about the attitude you have while you're serving. The Gemara talks about, we showed examples, even if you're doing something for your parent, but you're doing it with a bad attitude, that itself can negate the mitzvah. I think I mentioned last week, Rav Palm gave what was like such an obvious example. I've been on the receiving and giving end of this. I guess what goes around comes around. Uh, when you have a child who actually does what you ask them to do, but sometimes with nonverbal and sometimes with verbal communication, lets you know how upset they are about it. And you never ask my brother, you never ask my sister, how come it's always me? So Rav Palm points out from that Gemara that we saw, you've literally, you've lost the entire mitzvah. Cleaning up the you know the room, turning off the lights, taking care of your brother or whatever that you were listening to your parent, you lose it all when you express that bad attitude. So as I say, I've been on the giving once upon a time, uh, and certainly more recently on the receiving end of that. So I'm not saying it's easy, but that's something that we should all obviously inculcate for ourselves. And as we get older, our parents can even be more challenging than it might have been when we were younger. And certainly as parents, this is something that we need to uh, bear in mind. And then we also spoke about whether love is part of the mitzvah or not, respecting, genuinely respecting, not just you know, listening to and not being disrespectful, but if in your heart of hearts you have to actually genuinely find something about your parents. Hopefully it's easy, but not every parent for whom it's easy, to find something about them that you can you know, admire or respect or love. Anyway, those were the highlights of last week's year. And the truth is, I've literally given in yeshiva, I guess we call zman or semesters, courses on Kibbutz Aim. It's a huge topic. Uh, I've thought about it for a while, maybe even working on a book project, if I ever had the time. There's really that much on Kibbutz Aim. So for a second year, I was trying to think, what do I pick from all the different topics that are within Kibbutz Aim? And maybe we'll, uh, at some point in the future, uh, do another series, mini-series on Kibbutz Aim. There's so many examples, uh, even of just the course of your life. Who has to pay for keep it I've aimed, which we'll actually a little bit allude to. You know, it's one thing to say I have to help my parents. Does that mean I have to pay for that? Or if they give me their credit card, I have to do things for them. Uh, that, 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 that's, a, that's a very interesting discussion. Um, contradicting your parents. Um, what if you have difficult parents? Uh, those types of challenges. Anyway, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of topics. Um, grandparents, step-parents, uh, in-laws, these are all very interesting topics. Uh, but I thought to pick one, uh, I would do one which I thought, uh, if we have time, we'll get into three different examples. Uh, and that is a question which really gets to the heart of the nature of Kibbutz Ava'im. Which is, I think, you know, I don't think my parents were unique, and I'm sure I've repeated this to some extent with my own children, that from a parental perspective, I think we are, uh, many of us think of Kibbutz Ava'im as basically being about obedience. Friends, I told my child to do something, and they're supposed to listen. And when they don't, that's keep it up. Hey, you know, it's a problem. The question is, is that really true? Is that really true? We saw pretty comprehensively a whole, more than an hour share last week about details and the aspects of keep it up. Aim. Nowhere in there did we see specifically uh, about obedience. Now, the truth is that the parallel, the sister uh, mitzvah, which we did touch on briefly last week about mora. So one of the things that Gemara says about that is lo listor, you can't contradict. But in the Gemara and the Shulchan Aruch, that's like verbal disrespect. As your parent says something and you say no, or you publicly you know, disagree with them, something like that. But just, for example, in a life decision, right? I want to move here and my parent doesn't want me to. I want to choose this career. 
right? Those are like adult, sophisticated versions of what could happen even with children, which is simply you want your child to do something and the child wants to do something else, but nothing that really directly relates to you. I mean, even something as silly, perhaps, I'm just throwing this out there, um, if you tell your child to put on a coat because it's cold out, they don't want to. So again, maybe they're being silly and maybe even it's unhealthy for them, but is that an avera of not listening to your parents? Is there an issue of you have to listen to be obedient? Is that part of the mitzvah? So I'd like to kind of, if we have the time, speak about three big topics um, which are each one of themselves interesting, but I think they really revolve around this very fascinating uh, fundamental question, and that is A, uh, maybe the one where there's the most literature, and it'll also flesh out philosophically and halakhically the issues, which is getting married. Um, I don't know how common this is, but I know of cases. I know in my parents' generation, and even in my generation, less so, but I know of cases in which there was really, really strong painful debates between a parent and a child or who that child wanted to marry. At the end of the day, everyone knows that it would be better if everyone could agree on it, but let's say they can't. Is a child allowed to go ahead and marry who he or she wants, even against very strong, strenuous, and let's for now, for the best case scenario, even say it's not irrational. Maybe even there are somewhat reasonable objections that a parent has. So that's a really powerful question, especially if you've ever been in the middle or even peripherally connected to some of those stories. And I think it'll really flesh out the main issues. A much smaller topic, but very relevant to some of us, um, has to do with picking a school for our children or where a child wants to learn. This is when we were younger, this we call this the Shanabet question. Uh, but it could also be picking a high school or picking a yeshiva. Now again, most of the time, Either the parent, you know, the child's looking at two or three yeshivas or schools that your parents are more or less okay with. So, you know, it's okay. Those are the best case scenarios. But there are times where there's really a, uh, a divergence of, you know, of opinion. And it's not so much because, you know, this school has a little bit more of this or a little bit of that. Sometimes it really is different life directions that can be impacted. So as a child, and at what age would we even be talking about, allowed to make that decision for him or herself? If we're talking about a mitzvah of learning Torah. Maybe this is where I want to learn Torah better and the parent has a different vision. And then uh, thirdly, uh, which I hope we'll have time for, because this is the most directly related to all of us, at least retroactively, which is the Aliyah question. What if parents don't want children to make Aliyah? Um, Just want to point out that my in-laws just got back to uh, Israel. uh, And um, this would have been either humorous or incredibly sensitive. I'm not sure how my mother-in-law would have taken that if she was in the room. Uh, but uh, she's not ready yet to come back this year. My father-in-law's not ready to be left alone yet. Whatever. The, she, I, I, actually, I didn't tell her about the topic. I just said, I think, you know, I know you used to love coming to the shear before you went to America. You, if you want to, you know, the shear's tomorrow. And she said, I, I, can't, I can't leave Dad. Anyway, so she's not here. Uh, whether she'll listen or not, I don't know. And if, if she does, I love you, Mom. Um, okay. Um, so anyway, those are the topics I hope we get to. I think they're really interesting on many, many levels. So let's take a look uh, at the first two sources because this is the introduction uh, to everything that else that we will see. It's a pretty short Gemara, but it has incredibly profound applications. The Gemara has the following case. The Gemara has what we call a Havamina. The Gemara considers the possibility of something which it will ultimately reject. Yochol, Amr lo aviv hitamei, o she'amar lo al The Gemara describes two theoretical scenarios, but they're only just examples. What if a father who's a Kohen tells his son... I have something that I need, maybe uh, in uh, the cemetery, or somehow I need you. I need you to go to the seminary to do something for me. In other words, the father is trying to exercise, exercise his authority to have his child violate the prohibition against a kohen becoming tummy. Or alternatively, let's say the child lost, found a lost object, or they're walking along and they see a wallet on the street. The child knows about the mitzvah. He wants to be a good boy or a good girl and wants to return a lost object. And the parent says, "I'll talk to you." No. Don't want the hassle, leave it there. Don't return it. Or I just throw it out. Should a child listen to such a parent? Maybe that's keep it up, eh? Child, parent said I have to do something. So the Gemara says, no, you do not have to listen to such a parent based on what pasuk? Ish imo, the aviv tira'u. Okay, that's the pasuk we even mentioned at the beginning of last week's shir about um, mora. Not uh, kibud, not honor, but what I refer to as awe, more than fear, I would say. But the awe, the certain discipline and obedience that one has to have perhaps implied uh, to a parent. But the pasuk continues, says the Gemara. The same pasuk, it's a little bit, it seems like a non sequitur, but the Gemara is going to point out that it's actually very apt. It doesn't just say, ish imov aviv tiro, but the pasuk continues and says, ve'es shabsosai tishmoru. 
and my Shabbatot you shall observe. So says the Gemara, why do we have this conjunction? What does Shabbos have to do with Kibbutz Ava'im or Mora Ava'im? So the Gemara says it's coming to qualify and create a very important message uh, even on the Kibbutz Ava'im. That is to say, Kulchem Chayavim Bechvodi. It's a cap, it's a limit on Kibbutz Ava'im. Yes, you have to honor your parents. Yes, you have to be in awe of your parents. But everyone, you and your parent, have a first and prior obligation, and that is to honor me, says Hashem. That is to say, if a parent were to require a child to violate Shabbos, or as we saw two other hypothetical examples, the Kohen child going into the cemetery, or any other child not returning a lost object, or think of any other myriad of examples, says the Gemara, Kibur Ava'im only goes until it competes with another mitzvah. But the nature of Kibur Ava'im, as important as it is, Number five on the Aserah Sedebros. The nature of Kibbutz Ava'im is it will never require a child, it will never permit a child to violate another Avera because mommy or daddy told me to do so. Now, a lot of kids in my generation probably didn't know this. I don't know if they would have listened to it or not, but didn't know it. When I was a kid, you know, this is not just before cell phones. This is also before uh, long-distance calling was cheap. Uh, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that, uh, but there was a phenomenon when I was a kid of parents making these arrangements with their children, like when they were in sleepaway camp. I'll call, collect, and when the doctor, you know, when the operator says, you accept a call, then reject it and then call me back, Right? I don't want to exaggerate the point, but it was probably us to do that. So in theory, if, if I'm right that that was us to do that, it was also wrong for the child to listen. And if the parent would have said, bah, but I told you I'm your mom, I'm your mom, I'm your dad, as it's a qualification. So it's not just the examples in the Gemara, you know, we can be as, the, as creative as we want to be and, or, or remember real life experiences. Um, and again, I'm not how, comf- how comfortable a child would be, how awkward it would be, uh, I'm not minimizing that at all, but at least in terms of the abstract halacha, this is a very important principle laid down by the Gemara. Kibbutz Ava'im will never require a child, never permit a child to violate an Avera, even if they're only doing it, because mommy or daddy asked. And why? Because of this Pasuk. Shabsosai Tishmaru qualifies and says, Kibbutz Ava'im can never trump another mitzvah, because after all, yes, you have to honor your parent. But your parent has to honor Hashem, and that is a prior obligation. Okay? That's the Gemara. Now where this gets in... So if we were just discussing mitzvah versus listening to parent which some of our cases will relate to, that would already be enough of a basis and we could get right into some of the practical cases. But there's a discussion in the Rishonim in source number two, um, which fleshes out the deeper issue that I mentioned a few moments ago, which gets to the heart of Kibra Aim. Is Kibra Aim more of a service mitzvah or, and or respect as we saw or maybe even love as we discussed last week? Or is obedience and authority really part of the mitzvah? Why do I say that? So if you take a look at source number two, the Ritva on this Gemara, he takes it in a different direction, which you know, I think the average person might not even have thought about when they first read the Gemara, which is a psychological question which leads to a very profound discussion. In the case of the Gemara, why is dad telling his son, don't return the lost object? Why is dad, the Kohen, telling his son to go into the Besakvaros? So I sort of conjectured maybe, but the truth is from the Gemara itself, there's no indication. So at least if we think about it conceptually, there's two possibilities. Either there's some need that the father has, he, his wallet somehow got lost or something happened and it got into the cemetery and even though he's a Kohen, he wants his child to go get it for him. So it, it's wrong, but there's a good reason at least why we understand there's some need of the father or maybe the parents are rushing to who knows where and they're going to be late and therefore don't stop to pick up the lost object. At least we can understand there's a something. Or at least potentially given the Gemara, who doesn't indicate anything, maybe there is, you know, kind of, you know, listen, at some point, right, I think we all heard this as children and maybe uh, we don't have to volunteer if we've ever been guilty of this as parents. Uh, at some point when parents get frustrated, um, every parent has a fuse at some point that uh, runs out in which when the child's pushing and pushing, at some point you exasperatedly say, because I said so! Not our finest moment as parents. Uh, we, we were very smart when we were children. We knew that it wasn't a great way to parent, but sometimes we repeat that mistake. Um, but what we're, re- what we're really saying, what we say, because I said, why? Because I said so is, and you have to listen just because, not, even if there would be no reason, but I said so. Maybe that's what the Gemara is describing. 
The parent said, Stam, he wants to exercise his or her authority. So why am I mentioning this? Take a look at the source number two. So he quotes one opinion, and there's different versions of whether Rashi really said this, Rashi didn't really say this. That's not important for us for now. But the first understanding of the Gemara is, She'amar lo kein levatala v'lo l'shem davar. The first understanding of the Gemara is, yeah, ain't ekonami. There was no reason, no good reason, no benefit to the parent that he said, go into the cemetery, don't return lost object. And yet, if a parent says so, Kibrave means you have to listen. Alamai! There's pushback. You don't have to listen if it's against an Avera. But if there wouldn't have been an Avera, even if there's no good reason, that's Kibravein. Okay? That's the first opinion. The Ritva himself says, I disagree. Ve'eno nachon. Not true. Because if that would have been the case, Imkain, lama yishmalo. Why would a child have to listen to a parent? Afilu b'dvarim rashut. Even if there was no Avera. It wasn't. It was just stand on your head, not go into a cemetery if you're Kohen. Let alone if it's an Avera. See the second underlying part. Ein osa kavod, or kibud, ela ba'osa davar la'anaso. Says the Ritva, a very profound insight. Obedience for the sake of obedience sake is not kibud aveim. You can argue it's good parenting, you want to argue it's narcissism and bad parenting, but whatever you want to say in a parenting seminar or with a parenting coach, it's not keep it up aim. It's not the mitzvah. Authority, the shame. What's the mitzvah we saw last week? The child has to do things that benefit the parent, to help the parent. That's the mitzvah. We saw the examples. We expanded it. But it's not about authority for the authority's sake. And therefore, even if it wouldn't have been an Avera, so says the Ritva, he has to come up with a whole other way of reading the Gemara. He had to come up with some reason why the dad really needed the wallet in the cemetery. But the idea that there was no reason, then you don't even have what we call a Havamina. Then the Gemara, we wouldn't even have considered that you'd have to listen to the parent. Because you never have to listen to the parent if there's no reason, if there's no benefit. The only Havamina was because since the parent needs the wallet or needed the child and therefore can't afford the time the child would have spent, etc., etc. So what, what are the two different interpretations this Gemara getting at? They're getting at this very fundamental question. Is authority just for authority's sake? Is listen to me because I'm your parent and I know better. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But just that fact, even if it's not, it's your life, not my life. It doesn't benefit me at all as the parent. Is that part of the mitzvah? And it seems like we have a very fundamental debate about that question. This, you can imagine, the ramifications of this are huge. So let's take our first big topic, and that is marriage. I can't think of a single friend that I, anyone I was ever close with that had this really horrible story. But I remember after, a few years after I was married, somebody who I sort of knew, friend of a friend kind of, relative of a relative kind of thing, did have this case. And if, I'm not, if I remember correctly, the couple ended up getting married without one of the parents coming. Because that parent was so, you know, they tried to make shalom, but it never worked. But in my DNA, so to speak, I grew up with this because I have both my, my two different stories from my parents' generation that they were directly uh, or indirectly involved with. One was a family member, a cousin of my parents, where um, massive fighting to the end. I think the parents both came to the wedding, but it was bad because the parent was causing all the trouble, like said something that they shouldn't have said even at the last minute. And I don't think like that was it. I think that was rupture for 40 years. Like There's no relationship, but tried to stop the wedding. But the more famous case I grew up with was one of my parents' closest friends. I think it was a college roommate of my mom or my father's. That's how they became friends. Anyway, one of the sides did not approve of... You know, they thought their child was too good for the one who the, wanted to marry. Uh, they could never get it together. My parents and some of their other friends, each of them had like three nickels to their name, made the wedding for this couple on the roof of the Teaneck Apartments. The whole wedding may have been $100 or something. I mean, really, I mean, no one had any money. This is in the early 70s. And as far as I know, I don't know if the relationship ever really healed. But that, that's how stubborn. Now, why the second side didn't come, I don't even remember. But it was one side in particular that was... So they were fighting and fighting. And again, the, the merits of it and how horrible that is, is in real life is very fascinating maybe and sad. But the question is halakhically. And I'm sure at some point one of those parents said, I'm your parents, you have to listen. Is that true? Is that true? So this was a 
question that apparently came up a lot a few hundred years ago, and the most famous, not the only, but the most famous and authoritative source that's quoted, it's quoted often on this topic, is from the Maharik. The Maharik, Rav Yosef Cologne, was originally from a city in Germany, and eventually became famous, and these chuvas were written when he was a rav in Italy. Um, and this is talking about a few hundred years ago, uh, and he has the question right out at the front. And I will point out, as I did last week, the post game all point out that these are gender interchangeable pronouns. Um, this would be a mom and a, presumably a mom and a daughter, a mom and a son. But the example that, you know, the standard example, and maybe because it was a real life case, was a son wanted to get married and his dad is protesting, you can't do it. Says the Maharik, right away he tells you the bottom line. Now, there's a little bit of a wild card there, which a lot of posts can repeat, which is if she is an appropriate match. <laughs> the devil's in that detail, perhaps. But it shouldn't obscure his main point, because the whole trust of the tshuva is to prove his main point. A parent cannot stop a child from marrying who he wants, and again, I'm comfortable saying it would be true in reverse, or who she wants. A parent cannot, that's not possible because of kibbutz aim. But the interesting thing is, here we have to put on our thinking caps to see how these things will relate to other topics. He doesn't just leave it at that. In his very long tshuva, which I've distilled for you, even to a somewhat long source, he gives three different reasons. Three different reasons why you can't do that. The first reason, if you take a look at the second line, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit so we can move a little faster. He says something which could have been, as I say, a topic maybe for another time, a whole shear. There's a machloket in the Gemara about this point, but we paskin... A child does not have to spend his or her, mo- her own money on kibbutz avim. When the Gemara says you have to do all these things for your parent, it meant either it didn't cost you anything or with your parent's money. Okay, now, there are many ramifications and permutations and complications and subtleties. It would be its own topic. But that's the bottom line okay, for our purposes. So says the Marik, his first reason, he says on the second line is, if we say that a, parent, a child doesn't have to spend his or her own money, you have to give up your own money, Kol shikain, all the more so. Something as personal and as painful as not marrying the person that you love to give up on something like that? I don't have to spend $10 on a sandwich for my parent, but I have to give up who I want to marry? He says, logically, it doesn't make any sense. What the Gemara was saying, you know, when it talked about um, you don't have to pay for Kibbutz Avaim, it wasn't just the money, it was the profound perspective, which is that, yes, there's service to the parent that's owed, but not if it costs the child something that's actually uh, substantial or actually tangible. And therefore, he says, to take a chi- uh, uh, to marry a spouse that a person doesn't really want to, just because, you know, an arranged marriage, and I really love uh, so-and-so uh, who I uh, grew up with, and I know from the neighborhood, and whatever case you want to imagine, that you do not have to listen. That's point number one. Point number two, he says, a few lines below, V'od, Karav hadavar be'enai lios k'mitsuve avor al dvar Torah. Fascinating. He says, this goes back to the Gemara we started with. It's not just Kohanim going into cemeteries or lost objects or even Chil Shabbos. To tell someone to marry someone they don't love is asking them to commit an Avera. This is profound, right? Again, you go with this and take this uh, back home and use this uh, however you please. But I, I stand behind it. The Marik is telling us unequivocally that a marriage that is full of love is a mitzvah. And a loveless marriage is an Avera. How can you ask someone to marry someone they don't love? It's like asking them to commit an Avera. Inherent, implicit in the mitzvah of marriage, says the Marik, is of course that the spouse love each other. How can you tell someone to marry someone they don't love? Karav ba'ena, that's asking someone to do an Avera. And he points out numerous Gemaras that point out, you know, there's, uh, he gives one famous example, the Gemara says, a man can't agree to marry a woman, they can't do Kiddushin if they haven't seen each other. Because forget the personality connection. As much as we pretend otherwise, obviously we know on some level there has to be a level of physical attraction. So to marry someone before you even know if there is that chemistry, then you meet the person and either you're going to break up and humiliate them or you'll be in a, a marriage that you're not attracted. That's a loveless marriage. That's also horrible. The Gemara says that's usr. So it says to Enrique, it's not just that, it's the broader point. You can't marry someone even if you've seen them a hundred times. But if you don't love them, how could you possibly say you're gonna, someone's going to be forced to marry them? So that's his second point. Very, very fascinating and very, very profound, I think. Again, he, he quotes other sources. We don't have time to read it all inside. But here he's specifically talking about the mitzvah on a husband to love his wife and to show affection to her. How can you ask the boy to marry a girl? He's not going to be able to do that for it. It's not fair. 
And now the third and final point he mentions, about two-thirds of the way down at the end of the line, he says, V'od, and furthermore, all the machlokas is about do you have to spend money on Kippur of Aim, not spend money on Kippur of Aim, but those are all examples where you're doing something for the parent. Parent says, you know, I'm not feeling well, can you help make Shabbos? No problem, mom. Give me the credit card, I'll buy takeout. Give me the credit card, I'll buy the stuff. Maybe I'll even cook the dinner for you. But not that I have to spend $200 on uh, Shabbos. You have to do that. Right? That's the Gemara. Again, I'm not discussing now in the real world. If, parents, if the children, thank God, are uh, middle-aged and economically independent, they might be happy to spend money on their parent. I'm not talking about if you're allowed to. But, you didn't, but in, in the worst case scenario where a, parent, where a child would say, sure, ma, I'll help you, but give me your credit card. And the mother was like, really, after all this? That's, you're not going to help me if I don't give the credit card? And I went to the rabbi, who's right? So I'm not saying the child would be a mensch, assuming they could afford it. But technically speaking, they would be right. You don't have to spend your own money. Says the Marik, but that whole question is in what kind of scenario? Where you're doing something for the parent. As much as the parents may delude themselves, when I get married or you get married, it's not for them. It's for me, says the Maharik. That's not kibar A situation which is not relevant directly to the parent. He's not obtuse the Maharik. I assume he understands that you know, a Jewish mother and father want to have nachas and want to be happy and have all those you know, beautiful Pesach seders together and all those visions. I'm sure he understands that. But from a halachic perspective... Even, and even from a, just a more basic human perspective, the parties to the wedding are the chassan and kala, not the parents. To tell a child to do a deci- make a decision about something like that, pshita, it's obvious, he says, how could a child, how, why would a child have to listen to the parent? Not because of kavod, not because of mora, avim is only Relevant when we're talking about actually serving the parent in a way that the parent directly benefits. The shayich la'av, things that are related to the parent. Aval b'milsa, the lo shayich ha'av b'gava, something that's not related to the parent. Pshita de'en koach ha'av limchos. So on the one hand, yes, this third point is a very articulate, impassioned, profound declaration of the limits of aim, or if you prefer, a certain level of an endorsement of the child's autonomy. Yes, it's all there. But, let us think for a second. If that was so persuasive, why did he mention the other two reasons? Which is the main reason? Is it clear that this is what... If you didn't have the other two reasons, is it clear that he's... Yeah, he's definitely endorsing it somewhat. But it's not 100% clear if this is kind of a throw-on, it's the last thing he mentions, or if one of the two other reasons are really more important. After all, he does mention them first. Now, I say that because almost all poskim after him, this is one of those situations in which somebody makes a bit, you know important psak and between the persuasiveness of the argument, maybe the authority of the person, for hundreds of years, other poskim pretty much agreed with this. But many other poskim when they bring down this halacha, either they don't bring down any reason, or they may bring down dafka, one of the other reasons, and not this last one. So for example, if you take a look at source number four, this is from uh, the Maharshadam. He was from Salonika. And he lived in the 1500s, around the same time as the Ramah. For example, the Ramah, source number five, a more familiar source to us. The Ramah paskins this way. A child does not have to listen to the parent about getting married. But he doesn't tell us what reason. Now maybe it's because he agrees with all of them, maybe. But how do you know? And for example, if you just go up for a second, so the Maharshadam was basically a contemporary of the Ramah, but he was one of, more of a Sephardi posik uh, in Greece, in Salonika, was a Sephardi community there. So he has a similar case. And he, again, he, he, he emphasizes again, uh, if you take a look in the middle, that this is a, an appropriate shidduch. Hikshera kibnos Yisrael, v'tova hi be'enav. But basically it's subjective. I mean, unless she's really like, you know, the worst girl in the neighborhood, so to speak. But she wants to marry him. She's basically a, a decent person. He says, of course, you can't tell a child. The child doesn't have to listen. But look, he doesn't give the answer. He doesn't give the reason of parents can't tell children what to do. Rather, he has this quasi kind of mystical idea, you could say. The first thing he says is, the children that will emerge from a loveless marriage, or from a marriage even worse than loveless, maybe that's a a couple that hate each other, and unfortunately, 
Uh, I mean, if, if we're all, bl- I hope, blessed to be in uh, very loving marriages, we can't even imagine such a thing. But just because husband and wife hate each other doesn't mean they won't conceive a child. It's that fact is much stranger than fiction. Okay? So it's a real life, and Halacha is aware of this phenomenon. But says the Marshadam, Bonim, you cannot have Bonim Hagunim, right? From that famous tefillah, right? Good children, you will not be the product of a, of a loveless or a hate filled marriage. Hashem it's not what Hashem wants. You're not going to have good children. You can't ask them to get married to someone they're not going to be able to love, and they're going to have children that Hashem's going to hate. It's not going to produce good children, and that's not fair to ask a person to do. Now, maybe that's his... I, I thought that's kind of a mystical thing. I'm not sure if there's a rational you know, explanation for that. But maybe that's his way of saying, you know, you can't ask... You know, the first thing that Marik said, that it, it's, a, it's an avera to ask someone to marry someone that they don't love. But then he says afterwards... Uh, that's why I don't think it is, because it's in the last line of verse number four. Koloshikem, mitzvah's nesuin, it's a very important mitzvah. How can you tell someone not to follow that mitzvah? Anyway, he gives all sorts of other reasons, but the one thing he never says for sure is the third reason of the Marik. To me, it's reasonable to deduce that it's because he doesn't accept it. And we saw from the beginning of source number two in the Ritva. It's not clear that everyone accepts this child's autonomy idea that I get to decide my life and my parents have to stay out. Yeah, it is an opinion in halacha, but it's not clear that everyone agrees with that. And here you see an example of that. Or even, for example, a more familiar source, number six, the Arach HaShulchan. Again, he poskins a child. Again, bottom line, does a child have to listen? The answer to that is no. But on the bigger question that we're asking... So the Aruch HaShulchan says, why does a child not have to listen? Because getting married is a mitzvah. Source number six. Bechal devar mitzvah, einu mechuyuv l'shimo elahem. Afilu lisa isha yeshara beinav. You don't have to listen. You're wearing a nice girl. Your parents don't want you to. Too bad. It's a mitzvah and this is your mitzvah. But he's not mentioning the other reasons of the Ramah. Now maybe you'll say it's shorthand and what does he have to write? Maybe, maybe. But I think it's reasonable to think that even though on a practical level it seems that there's a very strong consensus about the wedding and the marriage and the shidduch, I'm not sure we have a clear direction about the more fundamental question. Now, even on the marriage thing, I want to add two more sources before we go to our other topics. Um, because equally uh, impactful, and certainly maybe even more influential, um, is the Nitziv of Elashim, Right, That's a name we're all familiar with. It's actually, uh, I'm not sure if it's today or tomorrow, but on... Uh, on Alana's trip to Poland, you know, one of the things that all these groups go when they go to Poland, they go to Warsaw Cemetery, and one of the main graves that every tour group goes to in the Warsaw Cemetery uh, is the Nitziv. And in fact, uh, one of the rabbis from her seminary, who's not going on the trip, but like his favorite person in the world is the Nitziv, and he always loves to. Anyway, he actually wrote out a whole thing which I printed for so she could read to her students. So I just had it in my mind, and coincidentally, it's also part of today's shir. Um, I myself have been twice at the Nitziv's uh, grave. Um, so he, you know, very one of the most influential uh, postkim in the last few hundred years. So he, in source number seven, he says, not so quick. You know, if we stopped right now, it's you know, very easy, let's pile on the parents, let's throw them over the, you know, off the bus. Parents, they meddle, and they shouldn't be doing that. And you see, even the halakha understands that you can't tell a child who to marry. And again, I, I, I'm giving you all these sources. It's clear that there's that thrust, and halakha is predominant. Says the Nitziv, I'm not 100% sure. And here's the interesting thing. You know, put your thinking caps on. It's very fascinating. He basically, the Nitziv, he reads the sources that the main reason is the third reason. The main reason is, keep it of a aim is only about things that are to do with the parent. And, and that's what Marik said. In a typical case, you don't have to listen because it's not about the parent, it's the child's life. Okay, that's good. That's, you know, that's really interesting. And I think it very much fits with a more modern temperament uh, in the world that we grow up in, uh, in which we have a certain level of respect for uh, anyone's autonomy, let alone the child's. And yet, but because the Nitziv thinks that that's the main reason... In that sense, maybe you'll call the Nitziv modern, but very, very old-fashioned or traditional in the sense of, but why do you say that just who the, chi- the child's wedding marriage decisions only affect him or her? That doesn't affect the parent. Their reputation in the community, based on who my little Miriam or Maishi brings home, that doesn't affect the parent? Who said that that's not part of Kibbutz Avain? I agree with you, Kibbutz Avain are things that relate to the parent, but why are you limiting it only to physical or tangible benefit or harm to the parent? What about a parent's reputation? What about their emotional well-being? So says the Nitziv, if you take a look in the middle, Ulefizeh Hatam, source number seven, Ulefizeh Hatam, According to that third reason, which he thinks is the main reason, in a, in a case in which it does impact the parent, stam, you know, I prefer you uh, marry the other girl. But there's a real good reason for it, and it's going to hurt the parent, 
In that case, you know, it's all about the reputation of the parent. Let's say the parents say, it's a busha. We can't make a shidduch with that family. We can't make a shidduch with that girl and it's going to embarrass the parent. He says, that's not kibud avayim or just a mora. That's what he calls bizayon or zilza. One of the, one of the prohibitions, this is a posuk and chumash, right? It's or, or, your parent, excuse me, a child is prohibited very seriously from cursing a parent. Now, we mentioned this very, very briefly at the outset of the shir last week when we read the Gemara. One of the Gemara's examples was comparing how the halachos of how you treat your parent, how you treat Hashem. And the Gemara said, just like you can't curse Hashem, you can't curse your parent. And we kind of even, if I remember correctly, we might even have made a little bit of a joke, like, this is not exactly so practical. Who's cursing their parent? I mean, Rahman al-Islam. But the Nitziv says, this is a certain form of it. By you humiliating your parent, by you bringing a busha to the family, a bisayon to the family, you're really hurting them. It's a form of arwar. It's a form of cursing a parent. And he thinks, therefore, that really might be prohibited. And he's not even sure a parent could be mochal on such a thing. Incredible. If you turn over the page, the second side, he reiterates, and this is his underlined bottom conclusion, you're right, it's true that there are certain limits to the kibbutz of aim, it has to do with the parent, but that's regarding maybe the limited mora of a kibbutz, where there's kind of a curse or a humiliation of the parent, there's no limit on a parent, a child's responsibility to avoid that. Now, I think it's clear that this is going to perhaps depend on the community. You know, what's considered a bizayon, what is, you know, you know, in certain cases, just not marrying the Rosh Hashiva's daughter is already the bizayon. In certain cases, marrying someone whom, whatever, is not rich is the bizayon. You know, there could be all sorts of scenarios, uh, but I think in every society there are, uh, you know, unspoken red lines, uh, and frankly, every parent's got their idiosyncrasies. So it's actually a little bit more complicated if you accept that. Now, if you look at source number eight, uh, on the one hand, this is a, the most contemporary source I'm quoting. On the other hand, this is like from Hasidish Bnei Brak, uh, or Vosner, so that might not directly re- relate to all of us in terms of his context. But he actually, interestingly enough, he pushes back against this. And he points out something which, you know, we have not even mentioned until now, but it's very smart of him to point out. How did this all start? A tshuva from Germany, from Italy, from the Marik all those years ago. What was that case? So he says, if you go back to the original sources, what was that case? Why did, this, why did the parents not want the child to get married? So he says, that case was a situation in which the woman was a divorcee. Not only was the woman a divorcee, and he was a bachar, he was single, it was, there were rumors that there was at least flirtation, if not worse, between this single boy and the woman when she was still married. And then she gets divorced, and now she wants to marry the single guy in the neighborhood. And the single guy's parents say, no! And then and in the end, the Marik said, at the end of the day, if she's, you know, if she's basically a decent human being, and this is who he wants to marry, we saw the tshuva, he gave three reasons, the parents can't stop. So says Rav Osner, source number eight, even in that case, where the whole original case was a case where presumably the parents had a right to say, listen, you're embarrassing us, it's a bizarion, you're marrying this divorced woman who you, you may have been not exactly great with before that. And yet, despite that fact, if you take a look at the third line, even though in that kind of situation, let's be honest, zila be milsa ba'avo mishpachto, right? that's not exactly the best uh, you know, yichus and um, reputational thing uh, for the family. And yet, afal piqueim, what was the Marik's psaq, bottom line? Unless there's a prohibition for this couple to get married or there's really something objectively problematic, the parents can't stop. Says the Shevet Alevi, and therefore I think, I'm not sure that Nitziv is right. Even if this is going to be a busha. How much worse could it be than that case? And yet, we still posken that you, the parent does not have a say. Now he adds, and this is my kind of bottom line on this, um, he adds, I think, something which is the most intuitive and probably what you're all thinking, and in all the cases I mentioned that I'm first or second-hand familiar with, they did try, but he points out, look at this, v'chalpam, last two lines of number eight, v'chalpam shabash ela kazot lefanenu, anytime I have this case, and again, I have to say, thank God, in my rabbinate at least, I've never had such a case, and Hashem should protect me that I never should, uh, but who knows, you never know, um, but apparently Rabbanim do get these things every now and then. You know, as I say, I am myself familiar with a few cases indirectly. 
Says the Rav Vazor, what does he do? Look at this beautiful phrase. Now six weeks away or so, almost from Pesach. Ani machmitz hadin. It's a play. What does that mean to me? Chametz. What is chametz when you go slow in making the dough? It's delay. It says when a parent or a child come to me, I try to string it out as long as possible, which is his way of saying, hopefully, the, instead of just giving up sock, child doesn't have to listen. I can give up sock right away, but then you can win the battle and lose the war, which is pretty much all the cases I told you about. Yes, husband and wife got to marry. Hopefully, they had a happy marriage, and also had no relationship or very minimal or horrible relationship. Do you really want that? So push comes to shove, if your parents put you in a horrible situation, maybe you will choose. And frankly, any time I've ever had to give advice to people, it never came to this. But I've, I've, I have been consulted at much earlier stages of the process. And on a practical level, not a logical level, I pretty much regularly, again, with some of these cases, again, it's kind of, I was brought up on some of these stories, so I guess maybe I'm particularly sensitive to it. I have pretty much always told the parent, you know, we'll talk about it, maybe I'll even, you want me to talk to your child, I can help, I can mediate, but one thing you need to keep in the back of your mind, push comes to shove, Nine and a half times out of ten, the child's going to choose the person they want to marry and not you. So as a parent, be very smart with what you say because you, you, know, you may want to really put your, you know, tell your child how you really feel and maybe it'll work and you'll get what you want. And the A still may resent you or B, it might not work and then they're for sure going to resent you. Nine times out of ten, certainly in the modern world, Child's going to go with love. So you have to be very careful as a parent. And the Ravosner, apparently, even in B'nai Brak, realized the same thing. I try to delay and delay and delay. Now he only goes in one direction. Maybe the child will realize that the talk of my parents are right. My parents are smart. They know more than me. That happens sometimes. It absolutely happens sometimes. I know of cases. Again, not at the end, you know, the last, you know, when they're ready at the wedding. But they're in the dating process or something. And, you know, some, uh, the boy or the girl really is starting to fall for that one. The parents have real concerns. They say something to the child. Sometimes the child actually listens. Or eventually they listen and say, oh, you know, you were right three weeks ago. You're... That does sometimes happen. Parents sometimes can see things uh, that children can't see. We understand that. Um, not every parent's a monster trying to, you know, just worrying about their reputation or silly things. Sometimes parents really see things that kids can't see, unfortunately. And there are many examples, I know many cases where people have gotten divorced and, you know, they say, if I just listened to my parent, you know, I could have saved myself a lot of heartache. It's true. That is all true. So the best thing is to try to mediate. You know, that's how I would, that my twist on this would be. And I would try if it was, God forbid, if I was ever the one involved. Absolutely. See if you can make shalom. See if the child can see the parent's perspective. Hopefully you get the parents to see the child's perspective. Push comes to shove. Yes, halakhically, the, parent, the child in the end can make his or her own decision. I think in 99% of the cases, that would be the halakhic psaq. But it would be a human tragedy. We should not be naive to that. And therefore, anyone who's involved, even peripherally in such a case, should try to figure out a way to make shalom. Okay, that's all huge topic, but number one. Very quickly, I'll just mention briefly the learning in schools, and then we'll, I think, go to the aliyah to finish up. So in sources 9 through 12, you have a few examples of this kind of tension between parent and child about where the child wants to learn. Right? So when we used to live in America, this was, you know, I want to go to that yeshiva, now that yeshiva. For certain parents, the old city is dangerous. For other parents, the, uh, the gush is dangerous. For other parents, uh, that yeshiva is going to make you too Haredi. For that yeshiva, the yeshiva is going to make you too modern. Also the reasons why parents may want to tell the child uh, where to go. And even uh, when we're living here in Israel, it could be high school decisions or, or post-high school decisions. So the Shulchan Aruch discusses this about a student who wants to learn in a specific place. And interesting, wouldn't you know it, um, the specific example the Shulchan Aruch gives is that the parents don't want the child to go. Why? Because the word is dangerous. It's dangerous. You're in a bad neighborhood. I was in Fairland for Shabbos a few weeks ago. Right across the river is Patterson. There's a very prestigious, very Haredi yeshiva in Patterson. They are not surrounded by any other Jews. And the non-Jews that they're surrounded by, many of them are very antagonistic. It is not simple to be an yeshiva in such a location. Right? It certainly helps you from avoiding distractions, which I think is why the yeshiva is there. Uh, no one's going out to town in, that kind of, in downtown Patterson uh, in 2022, that's for sure. Um, but that's the case that the Shulchan Aruch gives. Says the Shulchan Aruch, number nine, The child in the end can learn where he... Now again, this is definitely talking about a boy, but I, I, I can imagine cases where this would be applicable to a girl as well, where they think they will learn best. Um, says the Ramon, source number 10, don't limit this to a case, well, they live out of town, and there are no yeshivas there, so that's why the child wants to go, and if the parent's going to make the child. Says the Ramon, number 10, even if there's a teacher that they could be closer in a safer place. But the child says, yeah, but I don't want to go to that yeshiva. That Rebbe is not going to be able to one who inspires me. That Rebbe is going to be able to inspire me. 
Even then we listen to the parent, the child, excuse me. And in source number 11, another contemporary of the Ramah, the Lavosh explains because just the ability, if a child really, again, I'll, I'll qualify this in a second, at least with my own opinion, but the child convinced that they can learn better in Yeshiva X over Y, the child, and I, I once had this actually with a parent, um, this was, <laughs> the amazing thing is, the parent was begging the child to go to Ner Yisrael and night college, or at least go to night near Yisrael for three years because then you'll get a BTL, and then maybe you can have a hope of earning a living at 25 or whatever. But the child wanted to go to Yeshiva much more to the right even of Ner Yisrael. No college, no BTL, no nothing. Right? So I remember the, you know, again, on a human level, very complicated and fascinating, unfortunately, and very painful, maybe. But on a strict halakhic level, the father, I remember saying to me, I'm not telling the kid to go to public school. I'm telling him to go to Ner Yisrael. And the kid's saying, no, but I'm going to learn better over there. So says Levush in source number 11, again, from a halakhic perspective, to be forced to learn where you don't think you'll learn best, a very profound statement. To tell a child, to tell a person, I want you to learn, but not in the place that you can flourish. It's as if you've prevented them from learning. To limit a child's educational learning potential, now, you can say, who said it's true? I'm not discussing other facts. If we stipulate that the child won't learn as well, but he can learn, that's as if you told him not to learn at all. That's how much Allah endorses a person being able to try to pursue uh, their greatest potential um, in learning. So where does this come out practically? So number one, I think a lot of this is age-related. I can tell you in the Gottlieb family, kids do not get the final decision over high schools. We all, I, every, I went through this with four kids. All four times we said, you get absolutely, I want to know what you think. You get a vote, but you do not get the final say. I think they're too young as a general rule with uh, that, that kind of decision. On the other hand, even a year or two later, if it turned out they were unhappy, let alone for post-high school, there I think the pendulum has to... I'm not saying parents should let go completely. Just ask my children, they'll tell you I don't let go um, completely. Um, but I do think that the pendulum swings more uh, towards a child, for sure, as they get older, and for sure, if you try it. Now, again, I'm like everybody, we're all products of our experience. Not that I disagree with my parents, but I'm an example of where my parents sent me to one high school. I was miserable... And reasonably, my parents said, give it another try, give it another year. It was more miserable. So eventually, they let me switch. So, you know, I guess on some level that affected me. And I, 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 I felt, but I think it's reasonable, again, at some level, child's very young, 12, 13, 14 years old, to make a decision. I, in almost all cases, I would not let the child have a veto over that. Unless the parent really doesn't care, because I think the two schools are equally good. Okay, so then why not let the child pick? But if a parent really had a strong opinion, I think high school is way too young to just apply this halacha. But at the same time, as the child gets older, especially post-high school, I think there, there's much more to say. Uh, other post when they accept this halacha, point out it's not just the parent has to let the child go, but I'm not helping you. So what does that mean, help? So what do the tshuvas discusses? is a child wants to go to Israel, it was talking about a, a British child wanting to go to learn in Israel, and the parent had to like, help the child get his passport or something. So they say, yeah, that's what the Ramah, if, if, if you can't prevent the child from learning, it also means you have to help them with the logistics. Now, of course, the multi-million dollar question literally is, then we have to pay for it. So there I think, again, I can't give one answer, one sock for every scenario you can imagine, but there I do think it can depend. And I think the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. If we're talking about a high school or a basic you know, level yeshiva or a seminary or whatever it is, which in the end of the day is reasonable choice and maybe it wasn't your first choice, but based on what we're saying now, you have to let the child finally decide. You know, you really wanted your uh, child to go to uh, Michala and she chose to go to MMY or that kind of thing. To say, okay, fine, I can't stop you, but I'm not paying for it. I think it would be very, very unreasonable. But there could be other situations, frankly, which I think are, uh, again, this is me speaking personally, I don't think there's any strict halacha that I could apply to this, but my own common sense at least, is, you know, what if you have a case in which, I don't know, a child wants to go to a school with no secular studies? And parents don't want that. So maybe they have to let them, maybe. But do they have to even have to pay for that? I think that's obviously more complicated. And when a child says, okay, I'm 24 with three children and I still want to learn more years in Kolel, you have to pay. So there's nowhere in this halacha that says anything about paying for it. That's much, much of a, more of a gray issue. And that is something that I would say is probably more of on a case-by-case basis. I will also add um, that just if you see the second half of source number 12, he points out that a parallel to all this is where to daven. 
So if you take a look carefully, in the small little letters, he says, Davin Akilada Eila. No. Um, but, uh, but, but he just says, let's say a child says, and this I have had cases. I mean, not so much in the community, but I, even sometimes when I'll interview boys for yeshiva, and I'll say, what are you Davin? Well, my parents Davin there, but I prefer. Let's say a child says, I can't Davin, right? And Nebuch sometimes, again, this certainly does not relate to our community. But let's say a parent Davin's in a minion, which is very fast, and there's lots of talking, and maybe that's Davka, why the dad goes there. The child wants to learn, uh, Davin nicely. So the parent can say, no, you can't, uh, no, we, this is where we go, this is where I go. The answer is no, says the Pisgah Yishuv, verse number 12. Just like a child has to be able to fulfill their spiritual potential in learning, so Davin is also part of the child's spiritual potential, and you shouldn't hold the, the child back. Okay, last but not least, let's just spend quickly 10 minutes on the, or even less than that, on the Aliyah question. Okay, so Baruch Hashem, we're all here. Um, I imagine each one of us had our own stories. Um, some of you are quite aware of uh, my, my wife's story, um, which, thank God, ended with her parents making Aliyah. But that, no one would have predicted that 12 years ago. Uh, but we don't need to review all that on the recording. Um, but anyway, Baruch Hashem. Um, but certainly, certainly, it's not a new thing that children might want to make Aliyah and the parents would might be against. Right? That is an, as, as, a, as, as old as, we, as, as, in fact, perhaps as Avram Avinu, but certainly is an old, old story. So can a parent stop a child from making Aliyah, yes or no? So based on everything we've seen until now, it would seem to be obvious that the answer is no. Right? If you assume that Aliyah living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah, so everything we've seen is that you can't stop a child from fulfilling a mitzvah. And there are many sources that say that. I just gave you one example in source number 13, the great uh, Sfardi Chacham, Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, the Ben Ishchai. So he says, of course not, of course. You don't have to listen to a parent. It's a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael. A parent can't stop you. Period. It's easy. And many, many posts can say that. Why is it even remotely a question? Very fascinating. Source number 14. This is uh, one of the great uh, postgame uh, Hafla, in his Sefer on Chumash called the Panim Yafos, he was a Rebbe of the Chassam Sofer, very, very important person. So he points out that there's a Medrash about Avram Avinu that implies differently. You say, one second, I know my Chumash, at least Parshat Lechlecha, he did go to Eretz Yisrael, and he left, you know, Haran, he didn't go with him, this is not what it says in my Chumash. So what could be the Medrash that's, that's going to be a problem for this? So take a look at source number 14, we'll read this inside. The Medrash on the words, Lechlecha, you know, kind of picking up on the double language. Lech or lech, ani poter, or lecha, I should say, I'm sorry. Lech, lecha, why the lecha? You could just say lech, right? It would have been obvious that he's talking to Avram. Why lecha? Lecha, ani poter, mekib it av aim. The added word lecha, said the Medrash, is to imply that, yes, without this special commandment to go to Israel, it would have been prohibited for Avram to abandon his parents. You have a special mitzvah, lach lecha, that for you it's permitted. And they'll explain, near a perusho, im aviv b'chutz laaretz, what's the case? Parents are remaining out of Israel. Ein mitzvahs alias haben be'eretz Yisrael, docha mitzvahs kibbut aviv. It seems like from this medrash, that prima facie, without a special waiver, aliyah is not going to push off kibbut aviv. Only Avram has given permission. It was a unique case. Terach was a bad guy. He sold idols, etc. Avram, for you, the destiny of the Jewish people, the destiny of the whole human race, of the world, etc. You got to move to Israel. But for other people, Wow. That seems to be the implications of the Medrash. And that is exactly, it seems like this Panim Yafos, at least as one post sake, he thinks that that is going to prevent a child from going to Eretz Yisrael if it is against the objections over, of the parents. Now, interesting, even according to him, even according to him, he says in the last three lines, it's only in one direction. He says, what about the opposite case? Israeli parents live the Jewish dream they moved to Queens, so they opened a falafel stand. Or South Florida at this point, or California. There's so many Israelis, unfortunately, in these communities. Okay? They made Yerida. Kibar we want you to move to America with us. Is that also true? They can prevent me from making Aliyah. Can they force me to make Yerida? So if you just look at it as Israel versus America, or non-Israel, maybe you'd say they're the same thing. If you think that Kibar beats if it was a very simple mathematical equation, Kibar of Aim beats 
mitzvah yeshiv in Eretz Yisrael. So then it wouldn't matter which direction. But he doesn't accept that. He says you can't compare a child who wants to change their situation and leave their parents to go to Eretz Yisrael to a situation where they're already separated and you want to make the child leave Eretz Yisrael. To prevent the child from going is one thing. But to make the child leave, he says, he thinks that's not the same thing. Im hayid dirasam Eretz Yisrael v'aviv halachadur, the parents left. The child does not have to leave. And he gives a raya from another medrash and other characters in Tanakh from Megillas Rus. There, what happened? Who gets terribly punished? Machlon and Kilion. Right? The famine, they left Eretz Yisrael. But why did they leave? As he said, points out, even though Eli Melech had left, he's assuming that father-in-law is similar to father. He says, even though, sorry, that is the father, excuse me, even though Eli Melech had left, and they went. But you see from this that they got punished, that evidently leaving Eretz Yisrael is not the same thing as making Aliyah. Now that is his opinion. So we have a major, major, again, it's not a major machlok in terms of the number of postgame, but at least potentially two different perspectives. Does Aliyah, is it just like every other mitzvah? Or, again, even though he doesn't explain it, but again, I think we, on a human level, again, and all of us have had these kind of experiences, more or less, hopefully less, but sometimes more, um, we could understand, if you would ask me to theorize, why might, keep, why would, my, why might Aliyah be different than just any other mitzvah? Don't we always say that Kibar Avein can't beat a mitzvah? It's not contradict a mitzvah? So, again, I don't know for sure, but I certainly can theorize that perhaps this relates to the fact that, yeah, but, you know... Picking a yeshiva or even a wife, as important as those are, you know, what you're quote unquote doing to your parent cannot compare to, if you allow me to use a uh, sensationalist phrase, abandoning them to live very, very far away, especially in the pre modern world. Right? Your children, you know, you, your family member made Aliyah even 100 years ago, let alone a few hundred years ago. You may never see them again. Maybe once, maybe not, maybe twice. I mean, what are the odds? It's not like now. So I could potentially see why you would distinguish. But on the other hand, other posts didn't distinguish. And I think the bottom line halacha, as Rav Avad Yosef says, verse number 15, Rav Avad Yosef, he points out other sources uh, that seem to also say that a, parent, a child can do whatever they want. And that is the bottom line. Says Rav is very tzioni in this regard. He says, it's not even a question. Aliyah, mitzvah yeshiv Eretz Yisrael. Not only is it a mitzvah on the child, and therefore the parent can't stop, he adds a little dig if you want to use this on your parents, but be careful. Don't, don't blame me if it doesn't go well. He says here, towards the end, It's not just that a parent can tell a child not to do his or her own mitzvah. The parents have in the same mitzvah. So because you're not doing your mitzvah and you're living in Tinek, I can't do the mitzvah? Not me. Do not quote me if you use, if you use that line. But that's what Ravajah says. It's just a coincidence that a few of you have parents in Tinek. I didn't really... I could, London, okay, London, uh, etc. So it says, Ravavadi, it's not just that the child has his or her own mitzvah, it's the same mitzvah of the parents. They have a legitimate reason, they don't have a legitimate reason, but because you're not fulfilling the mitzvah, therefore, because you chose not to do it, therefore you're going to prevent me from doing it? Yeah, now I'm quite aware, and very aware, that that can be more complicated on a human level than it is in a shear. But nevertheless, in terms of a bottom line, should a child make aliyah over parental objections? I think the answer is it could be complicated, just like the Shaila about the Shidduch and getting married is complicated. Do you really want to rupture a family? Now, maybe it's the parents' fault. Why did the parents have to raise the stakes so high? Let's lower the temperature. You could be disappointed, but you don't have to hate your children if, you know, and disown them. But you can't always convince parents to lower the temperature. So, you know, again, mediation, therapy, family therapy, etc., that would clearly be the first thing. But if you want to just, you know, like a chemistry experiment, if you just want to pull out one factor, and I, I'm admitting, I don't think it's the only factor, but the one factor, if we could isolate the property and the factor, what would halacha say? If there was, everything else was equal, I think the child gets to ultimately, certainly in their religious life, chart their own course. And uh, it's not for a parent to limit the options or the opportunities of a parent. And we saw that pretty much uh, in all three of these cases. But again, they have to really be aware of the situation. We've had cases... That, I'd say every year, but every few years we have a case where a child wants after Shanal, Shanabet, they just want to stay and make Aliyah. I mean, we have that all the time, and mostly, thank God, nowadays parents are blessed that. But we have had cases, some you know, rare cases, but we had cases where it was really like, just we couldn't get the parent-child together. 
Uh, and at that point, as like the younger or American Rebbeim, we always say, you've got to go speak to Moshe Lichtenstein. Like, I'm not giving you a psaac. Let's get it. Um, most of the time, he has given the kid the psaac. I mean, it's not so complicated, based on the, you know, that in the end of the day, if you want, halakhali, you're allowed to make um, aliyah. Not necessarily recommending it. And there have been times that even after that psaac, you know, me or other Rebbeim have said, you know, you really, really want to consider. Get, I have one case I'm thinking of in particular. There's been more than one, but one in particular where the child really would have been pretty much on his own. Now, I could say, hopefully, eventually the parents would have gone around, and, you know, but, like, they were really threatening, you know, Putin-esque, you know, we're abandoned, you know, cutting you off, no money. I mean, are you ready at 20 to have no parental support? I mean, that's what they were threatening, and they meant it. But would they eventually come around? You, but, you know, the child's considering no money, getting married without my parents. In three years from now, don't go, I haven't even met yet, but then my parents already tell me they're not coming. And again, I personally think it's unforgivable for a parent to do such a thing to a child, other than in the rarest of cases. And this was not that rare case. This was just parents being, unfortunately, very difficult. But at the end of the day, that particular child, and I don't blame him at all, even, even that, he went back to America. Whether ever make Ali, I don't know. And I don't know what his relationship with his parents is. One of the things that you try to tell parents in that case is, you may win the battle, but you're going to lose the war. You think your child's ever going to completely forgive you? Even if they listen. But just think what you're doing to them. So sometimes parents hear that, sometimes they don't hear that, sometimes the child can even be stubborn. These cases in real life can be complicated, but at least we have to know what the halacha says in order to then deal with all the other uh, human complications.